Take a network break. We're rapidly approaching the end of the year, but the tech news doesn't stop, so neither are we. We've got stories this week on AWS, NVIDIA, Aviatrix, and Insider Attack, and more. We're sponsored today by Palo Alto Networks. To find out what's next in SASE, sign up to watch Palo Alto Networks' SASE Converge 2021. It's an on-demand webinar where you hear from leading voices in networking and security, get details on the impact of SASE technology, and more. You can find all that at sasseconverge.paloaltonetworks.com. After the news, we have a sponsored TechBytes conversation with Fortinet. We're going to be talking about their security fabric. That is how Fortinet actually integrates its portfolio to work together so you can manage risk better. And just a reminder that you can connect with other network engineers and IT pros on the Packet Pushers Slack channel. It's free to join. We don't collect any information about you. You can ask, ask and answer technical questions, make connections in the networking community, and have some fun. Check it out at packetpushers.net slash Slack. Uh, and yeah, speaking of Slack. The Slack channel is really good because you get out of it what you put into it. If you participate, <laughs> as if you don't want to participate, things, yes. that's fine too. Yeah, you know, absolutely. So, yep. And we're not going to harass you or give you badges for participation because you're all grown ups. <laughs> There's no gamification. Yes, none at all. Yeah, I don't need to give you a pretend pretend internet pixels to make you feel valued and worthwhile. Do I? <laughs> we do we have not. to? We do not. No. I uh, so speaking of Slack, uh, Daniel Dibb, who you may know from Twitter, uh, is on our Slack channel. He reached out via Slack uh, with an FU or follow-up. Uh, this is regarding, we discussed last week, uh, AWS having some native IPv6 capabilities. Uh, and he says IPv6 has actually been uh, uh, in AWS for a long time, but never as a first-class citizen until now. Yeah, his point was that while IPv6 was always there, the, you had to have an IPv4 address for everything. So even though you could configure v6, you still had to have a v4 or things didn't work. So, for example, there was a strict requirement that elastic network interfaces also had a v4 address. And then, of course, as he goes on to highlight, he says that if you run out of v4 and a vpc, you then can't configure any v6 either because every NIC must have a v4 address. So you don't get the benefit. What they're saying is now you can actually go v6 only, uh, but of course, if you still have people that are on V4, and this is what I flagged last week, you still have to build a NAT 6 to 4 gateway or a NAT 4 to 6 gateway, depending on your point of view. And you also have to have a DNS 6 to 4 service so that you can resolve um, IPv4 DNS names into IPv6 addresses and so forth and handle the whole thing. It's not entirely elegant. And there's sort of like this is one of the reasons why IPv6 is harder than everybody thinks. <laughs> uh -huh. And as somebody pointed out in some other Twitter streams, even though they can build uh, an IPv6 only service inside an, a an AWS VPC, there's lots of things that you would put into it that don't work with V6 yet. So, uh, yeah, you know, baby steps, perhaps. Baby steps are working baby progress. steps, but... <laughs> Ah, that hurts. <laughs> yeah, 20 years of baby steps, but still, baby step, maybe another baby step, you know. Maybe baby step for many years to come, yes. Yeah, that's it. That's the one. Uh, as always, we do appreciate corrections, insights, additional details that you have. You can reach us uh, via Slack or at packetpushers.net slash FU. We'll have another FU later in the show uh, regarding a longer story that we want to talk about mm -hmm. down further, but we'll move on with some news. Uh, AWS, they held its annual reInvent conference. They did it in person in Las Vegas this November. There are a couple of highlights from the event uh, regarding networking. That's a private 5G service and a new direct connect option. So let's start with private 5G. Yeah, so this is an, uh, something that AWS has been working towards for a while. This came onto the cards fairly clearly when Google and Microsoft uh, both announced that they would be providing 5G backend SaaS services to telcos. AWS has taken it a step further here and uh, turned it into a burger. Uh, what I mean by that is 
Uh, most of when I look at AWS services, most of them look like burgers. It's pretty easy to make your own burger. Uh, but if you want to make like most fast food, that's all easy and cheap to make. But if you can make it at scale, that fast food gets really easy and really cheap and is really profitable. Hence five guys and McDonald's, right? You can make burgers at scale and everybody loves them, even though they're bad for you. So this is one of those in my mind. It's not like AWS is doing anything new here. They're copying what Microsoft has already done through their acquisition of Metaswitch. Google's got a whole project in-house around OpenRAN and trying to find ways to do a 5G backend. Intel, of course, has got a huge effort to try and get into this market. So uh, what AWS has done here is said, we will provide you with a 5G base station and we'll ship it out to you. Uh, you sort of basically install a couple of computers in an appropriate location, you power them up, attach a small cell uh, transceiver, which is like a Wi-Fi box, mm -hmm. and lo and behold, you've got a private 5G. Isn't that great? I mean, in some ways, I think it is. This is what uh, mm -hmm. Amazon and AWS are great at. It's reducing the friction toward getting what you want. So they will act, mm -hmm. you, you, you as the customer specify an area where you want coverage. This can include indoor and outdoor locations. And then AWS delivers and sets up that infrastructure. So you mentioned uh, the base station, cell radio units. Mm -hmm. That also includes servers, a 5G core, and the software. And the SIM cards, all you have to do basically is take the SIM cards and put them into the devices you want to connect to that network. And then, hey, presto, private 5G. Yeah, which is pretty straightforward, although packaging it all up like this actually is very is a major thing. Not so far with private 5G, we've seen, you know, Ericsson and Nokia sort of say, oh, yes, private 5G is the future, but they're not selling the SIM cards. <laughs> and then they're waiting for somebody to appear in the middle. So you sort of, if you're going to do private 5G up until this point, trying to find a way to build the bundle, which rounds out the whole solution, which includes the SIM cards and the software and all that sort of stuff, um, is going to be quite difficult. It does. So the interesting thing that struck me, Drew, is it's like the whole premise of off-prem clouds is that you go and put it in somebody else's data center. So I do find it amusing that AWS is now saying, yeah, but when it comes to doing 5G, we've got to put it on-premise. It's kind of, there's a tension there, if you see what I'm saying. Well, I mean, I guess it does get away from AWS's, you know, we're all cloud, but we've also seen them move into on-prem stuff with Outposts and so on. So I think this is just a further extension of that. You can't do everything in the cloud mm -hmm. and sometimes you need gear where you are. So that's what they're doing. Well, of course, the existing 5G providers, the mobile codes, are your cloud provider here. How so? Well, you just go out and buy a SIM card and you rent it. Mm -hmm. And it's all capacity driven. You buy one per person and you pay for it per month, right? Right. Whereas in this model, you actually have to go and buy some equipment. You have to install it. It's really anti-cloud. Just, a, just an interesting observation. I guess it is anti-cloud in that regard, although it's sort of yeah. that cloud model where it's all delivered to you with a few clicks of a mouse. Yeah, it's basically a SaaS service. So That's, in yeah, the same way that a lot of our SD, yeah, a lot of our SD WAN products these days, or data center, you just click a button and you get a delivery of a hardware, you put it in, then it turns on and it connects to a cloud-hosted service. It's in that vein. So this looks more like SD WAN and is definitely not cloud to my mind. Um, I, I guess you could say it's private cloud or hybrid cloud. That's probably how they would position it. <laughs> it's just interesting to sort of call <laughs> that out there just in case. So all those people who've been rapidly saying, I don't want to own it. I just want to rent it. Well, yeah, you're renting it, but you still got to buy the hardware and put it in. I think it also flags that um, the mobile codes, just how difficult it is for a public uh, telco to actually deploy technology. So they've also got, when they put up a 5G station, they have to go to the local council, apply for privileges. Because they're doing that, they have to put up a tower that has to cover a large enough area. They need to provide power. 
They need, you know, to pass local planning permission. They need to build a base station for it in the middle of nowhere. Whereas building 5G, and, and this sort of highlights just how trivial a 5G is as a technology. Does that make sense? I don't think it's that 5G is trivial. I think that the fact that Amazon's win here is that they get to use unlicensed spectrum so they don't have to worry about uh, running into mm. regulatory issues around what spectrum yes. they're using. That, that, that's the secret sauce here. Yes, and at this stage, there's only one country that I, I believe could be wrong here, but my sense is that there's only one company offering unlicensed spectrum for uh, private 5G use, and that's the USA. Mm -hmm. And that is in the 2.5 to 2.6 gig range. Um, there is, um, so it may not be geographically universal is what I'm saying, just right. because you can deploy it in the US where there's definitely spectrum availability. The FCC has allocated an uncontrolled spectrum. Um, it doesn't mean it's going to work for you. If you put up a small cell in your office to do private 5G and the office next door is using the same spectrum, you've got the same problems that you would have with Wi-Fi installations, for example. Right? Sure, the interference issues and so on, yeah. Yeah, but in theory, they should be okay. There should be enough uh, slices in the spectrum to be able to do that. Uh, but, you know, who knows? It's not going to be perfect. Um, and then like Wi-Fi, um, installation of these things is not particularly simple or more correctly, troubleshooting these installations is not simple. If you have overlapping small cells or if you have too much signal on a given channel, or if you have too many handsets in a given area for a small cell to handle, troubleshooting those things can be very problematic as Wi-Fi people have found out over the last 20 years. And I do wonder what this means, whether, you know, AWS is sort of making this, making its sales pitch that it's just, oh, you just order it and install it and you just turn it on and boom, you've got a 5G. And I'm going like, no, it's a, there's going to be problems. I mean, there is always more to it, particularly in terms of day-to-day -day operations. There's always going to be issues that you're going to have to address. I think where AWS, particularly is steering a march on uh, mobile operators, like, you know, the Verizons, the AT&Ts of the world who were like, hey, wait a minute, could, could we have done something like this? And now AWS <laughs> just is beating them to the punch. Yeah, exactly. And I think it will be successful. If you're um, somebody who's running a private two-way radio network on a site, maybe inside a warehouse and, you know, you know that your Wi-Fi is not working very well because those signals really don't seem to cope in that, whereas 5G will work. And, and instead of issuing, you know, uh, handsets with Wi-Fi, does it make more sense to use smartphones with private 5G connections? If you've mm -hmm. got a, I imagine that AWS will do private 5G just for its own data centers and communications on those campuses that it has. Um, if you're somebody who has a campus of some sort and you just want to issue you know, security with private two-way radios. Well, this is a way to do that very effectively. So there are some niche use cases here. The question to my mind would be, um, is it going to be, uh, is it going to impact Wi-Fi? I don't know. I'm not going to speculate on that because I think it's too early, but I wonder how much hidden complexity is in here. I just feel like this has got, this is all too glossy and too shiny for me. Yes, we should always be suspicious when uh, all of the marketing is around ease of use and ease of deployment, uh, because mm. there are uh, hidden things that you need to be aware of. I, I also wonder if uh, your traditional Wyland vendors are looking at this with a raised eyebrow going, hmm, is this a problem for us? And, and how do we react? Obviously, you know, the fact that you have to be able to install a SIM card in something means there are some devices that this uh, 5G, this private 5G just isn't going to work for. If you can't install a SIM card, you can't get it onto the network. You need to rely on the radio in the device. So that gives them some protection. But yeah, it's definitely mm. opening up a new competitive front for the YLAN vendors. Yeah, I think so. It'll be interesting to see. Uh, the YLAN industry hasn't done a great job of keeping itself easy to use and easy to troubleshoot. 
I think this will live and die by how much features AWS has put into the small cell to manage the spectrum problems. Mm -hmm. Uh, I can't imagine that AWS is going to be very successful. Like a lot of AWS's products don't actually become successful, right? A lot of them fail. It's not like AWS hits a winner 100% of time. Sure. Um, And in this case, there's plenty of room for spectrum to bring about a downfall. And if, and what we know is that, you know, different Wi-Fi products have attempted to introduce spectrum troubleshooting into the edge device, Mm -hmm. but then the cost of that is very expensive. So then you have to have specialist staff who come out with specialist hardware who can do spectrum analysis and, oh my goodness, it just gets really, really difficult. All right, I'm going to make a prediction that uh, next year's reInvent, they're going to announce an AI or ML uh, private (laughs) spectrum management solution (laughs) for this to to deal with exactly those issues when you buy their private 5G service. (laughs) You think they're going to buy Juniper so they can get missed so they can troubleshoot? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> that's, that's, that's what I'm saying, yes. <laughs> I'll get the spreadsheet out. Mark it down, please. <laughs> Mark it down. <laughs> All right, so other networking related news from uh, reInvent AWS announced a new service called Direct Connect SiteLink. Uh, Direct Connect SiteLink lets you set up private network connections between your branch and headquarters sites without that traffic having to traverse an AWS region. So essentially, traffic will flow from one direct uh, connect location to another, following the shortest possible path without having to hit that region hop or even hit an AWS transit gateway. So I think the idea here is that you could build a private network without having to go to your traditional telco MPLS kind of thing, uh, get it through direct, direct connect. Um, and I guess also save a couple of hops on running through an AWS transit gateway or, or region. I, I guess the best way for me to describe this is that a lot of companies will have MPLS services running into the AWS pop today. Mm-hmm. Um, it was quite popular for people to um, to use direct MPLS connections under the inf- assumption that it's more secure. I don't know exactly how they get to that, but okay. Um, and then, so now you have a whole bunch of customers who are directly connected to AWS's MPLS POPs, MPLS telco cabinets. And what they're saying is, well, we'll just automate that so you can use our backbone as a long haul. Mm -hmm. Um, And that, of course, is what colo facilities have been doing for the last 20 years is building up telco rooms, getting all the telcos to come in and bring in their tail circuits, and then providing an automation platform so a customer could go in and say, oh, this Ethernet port at the top of my rack, I want that to be connected to carrier C, and I want them to give me an MPLS service at, uh, you know, 10 gig port density, and I want it to connect from here to here. And this is what uh, AWS is doing, I think. This is the best summary I can come up with it. Yeah, that sounds about right. It sounds like, I mean, you still need that last mile connection into Direct Connect, uh, which you can do yourself or work with a partner to get, um, but then you're going to ride from Direct Connect across AWS's backbone. Yes. Now so you it have is to essentially pay for... going to AWS for a private network to connect all your branch sites. Yes, which is, there's a couple of things out of that. One is you have to pay AWS for the dedicated connection. So you pay port hours. So one gig, 10 gig, 100 gig ports. So 100 gig port is $22.50 per hour uh, in the locations that it's in today, which are US locations. And then they charge you for the capacity that you provision on those ports. So a 10 gig connection is $2.48 per hour. Um, Now, considering that you've already got an MPLS tail into an AWS uh, telco, you know, the telecoms room, uh, that might be quite suitable for some people, right? In, instead of going out to another telco, buying an MPLS service from them, uh, it might just make more sense to use this existing tail circuit to get it up and running. And then, of course, once it's up and running, people don't turn it off. Right. Um, and it also, a bit of a kick in the pants for telcos because it sets a baseline under the pricing they can charge customers too. 
It kind of does. Yeah. And it's one of those things where, you know, maybe you become an AWS partner to catch some of that business, but then you also are facing AWS as a competitor. Yeah. So AWS was going to set pricing. You can sit there and say, well, if I bought, you know, a 10 gig port and I was running five gigs on that port and I used it for 24 hours a day for 300, it's going to come out to this much. But if I go to this telco and they're going to charge me this much to bring in a tail circuit and this much for the, you know, blah, 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 you can calculate an ROI and then, uh, go competitive, you know, uh-huh. and say to them, well, look, I'll just go to AWS. Yeah, I don't need you. And the telco's got to, you know. <laughs> uh, you still have to pay for data transfer pricing here. So yes. there is some variables in this. So you do have to work it out. Um, I think also there's some SD-WAN providers that might be disrupted here, Drew. There's a few, more than a few, who actually take um, traffic off to the local. They build pops up around the world. And then they take your traffic over the internet into their pops. And then they literally backhaul it over AWS's backbone network. Well, if this is here, maybe I don't need an SD-WAN provider to do that for me. Yeah, I was wondering about that as well. It does seem like a potential knock for SD-WAN companies um, because AWS now has, it's you know, it's not an SD-WAN service. It's more just a private network. You don't get, you know, uh, that redundancy across multiple links and so on that an SD-WAN is going to get you. But if primarily what you're interested in is connecting into AWS services and getting AWS backbone, then maybe you wouldn't go with SD-WAN. That's right. But there's, a, there's some odd things going on there like it's not that most sd-wan uses the the private networks of the telcos to offer an accelerated service but there's a few mm-hmm. and the point now would be is that if i can do this use my direct connect as an sd-wan as an sd-wan path maybe i might want to do this now alternately if i'm an sd-wan provider who's doing this for you for the customer this might be uh, a problem because it might be represent a pay rise because i think up until now they've kind of been wangling it if you know what i mean so this might be a disruption to some of those services. And uh, AWS might also want to be ensuring that its direct pricing is better than its indirect. So, you know, if there's a competitive situation, AWS always wants to look cheaper than its competitors. Mm-hmm. For sure. So, yeah. Yeah. But otherwise, the last one, the, obviously there's a disruption here for uh, Colos, who for whom this is a key service, this ability to access you know, bandwidth dynamically at the pops that they have. But the last one is there's a number of companies out there who are automating MPLS services and they have their own backbones. Um, there's a lot of companies out here who have been bought um, uh, by the mainline telcos. And this obviously disrupts that whole business model completely. Would you rather go to AWS and use them as a dynamic backbone builder or would you rather go and set up with a third party who's got a whole bunch of MPLS pops and they're not very Are they as automated? Are they as useful? What Mm -hmm. do their charges look like? Right, exactly. Yep. All right, links in the show notes if you want to find out more about how AWS is swallowing the entire world. Uh, But we will move on. The U.S. Federal Trade Commission is suing to block NVIDIA's proposed acquisition of ARM, saying the acquisition could stifle innovation by reducing competition in the semiconductor industry, particularly in DPU smart NICs, CPUs, and driver assist systems. And this is big news, and I think it's big news for enterprise IT uh, not as a hot issue, like not as something that's right in front of us today, but the rise of ARM. So this week also at AWS announced it's doing more with ARM CPUs. It's got its own ARM core that it's developed for use in the data center to carry more workloads. Obviously, we've seen Apple do more with the ARM CPUs. We've mm-hmm. seen NVIDIA talk more about its ARM servers and, and so on and so forth, right? Right. And um, obviously the idea that NVIDIA would buy ARM, that's something like a 40 to $60 billion deal, depending on how you count it. And most of the content I've read filled that this takeover was unlikely from the start. And 
that NVIDIA was doing this as a political move or a, a strategic uh, market move to try and say uh, there's something, you know, we're big enough to be able to do this, you know, bullying its way into the silicon market. Uh -huh. uh, so just to give you some background before we talk about the FCC, the British government, Arm is a UK company. It's right. owned by SoftBank, of course, which is the Japanese investment company. Uh, the British government has signaled substantial opposition to this and has subsequently set up an inquiry in the Competition and Markets Authority, the CMA, mm -hmm. to conduct an inquiry into the proposed sale. This is fundamentally flagging that the British government doesn't want it to happen. This is how you do it. You send it to committee. And then it's up to NVIDIA to then make assertions to the government that it won't change anything and it won't move headcount and it won't shut down the business because otherwise the government might oppose. Uh -huh. The British government certainly as a part of Brexit wants to see ARM stay as a UK-based company and it's it's doing its investment in people in the UK and so forth and so on, right? So they've already said that they have a substantial number of conditions to say that ARM is must keep a headcount here and so on and so uh -huh. forth. Uh -huh. So now that the US government has signaled via its FTC that it's opposed to the merger. I think this is really this politics impringing on tech. Tech has got so much into the mainstream. We talk about this a lot, that when we try to read where the industry is going and make purchasing decisions and, and design decisions, we need to be aware of it. So, um, so the last piece of this is that the EU obviously has a commission and they had set up an, a, a research project into it as part of its competition uh, thing, and they were also broadly opposed. And they actually said, our analysis shows that the acquisition of ARM by NVIDIA could lead to restricted or degraded access to ARM's intellectual property with distortive effects in many markets where semiconductors are used. So not just the FTC, the EU, the British government are all opposed to this, at least in the government's slow but steady way mm -hmm. forward, don't you think? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and I uh, honestly, I think all these government entities make a strong case for why we want to keep NVIDIA and ARM separate. Um, uh, NVIDIA could deny licenses to competitors. It could place onerous restrictions on those licenses, or uh, the FTC raises the issue that uh, NVIDIA could use information that it gains through the licensing process about its competitors uh, to steal a march on competitors. So I, I do think there are serious competitive mm. concerns here and, and that the governments are right to step in and say, hold on, we need to take a closer look. Yeah, the FTC particularly highlights three markets in which it's concerned high-level advanced driver assistance for passenger cars. So that is uh, the CPUs or ARM-based products in uh, automated driving, mm -hmm. uh, DPU smart mix where advanced networking products, and they're saying that NVIDIA would get a competitive edge there, that dominant market position. Mm -hmm. And then the third market is ARM-based CPUs for cloud computing service providers. So they're actually identifying those as specific markets related to this. So it's very interesting. But I think it's also interesting to see that governments are willing to move early into and into competitive markets. Over the last 20 years, we've seen the government sort of take a hand off you to tech and say, like, we're just not going to regulate it. We don't understand it. It's not, not a big deal. Mm -hmm. And now we're seeing it. So uh, last week, the UK government, for example, its Competition and Markets Authority uh, has announced that it's now requiring Facebook to sell Giphy. Do you remember Giphy? I do not remember Giphy. <laughs> <laughs> Giphy is a is a website that puts little mean gifs inside of your posts, and you can just basically insert them. Very popular in certain segments. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, gaming and and certain types of groups on Twitter and link and LinkedIn and Facebook and stuff. Mm -hmm. Facebook purchased it eighteen months ago. The UK government has now announced that Facebook has to sell that because it's anti competitive, because <laughs> Giphy could be used for advertising, and they don't want to see Facebook dominate the advertising market. I see. Okay. 
right? Which is a bit of a kick in the teeth to Facebook, uh, particularly, but it's also a, a much larger signal to tech companies that they who want to move fast that they can also run into the brick walls of governments years later, which I think a lot of tech companies have kind of forgotten about. Right. Well, I, I sort of see it a slightly different way. You know, of all the things you're going to prevent Facebook from buying, I would have started with maybe Instagram or WhatsApp and not uh, some mm. Giphy service, but okay, whatever. Uh, I think what it signals to me is that uh, the governments have now realized that it's harder to unwind uh, deals once they've happened and sort of solidified rather than stop it mm. from going forward. So at least in this case with NVIDIA Arm, they're saying, wait a minute, we anticipate significant problems. So let's uh, get ahead of ourselves here. Yeah. So the golden years of the tech companies doing whatever they like, whatever the hell they like, whenever the hell they like to do it might be coming to the end, especially so. at the big end of town. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Definitely. Mm. Yeah. All right. Again, links in the show notes so you can read about it yourself. We'll move on. Uh, just a quick break to tell you about our sponsor, Palo Alto Networks. They recently launched the industry's first conference dedicated to SASE. It's called SASE Converge 2021. Uh, you can sign up and see an on-demand version of the event. You'll hear from industry veterans, including uh, Palo Alto founder and CTO Nir Zook. You'll hear from Gartner's vice president and distinguished analyst, Neil McDonald, and the godfather of SDN, Martin Casado. You can also see Palo Alto's new Prisma Access 2.2 capabilities in action. Get details on the impact of SASE technologies and learn about forthcoming innovations. It's all at sassyconverge.paloaltonetworks.com to register. That's sassyconverge.paloaltonetworks.com. We thank Palo Alto for being a sponsor. Yeah, for sure. Back to the news. Aviatrix, they make a multi-cloud networking platform. They've added a new security capability to the platform. It can identify and then block connections from your cloud-based workloads to known bad hosts or IPs. So think about like botnets, command and control servers, malware domains, and other malicious sites. The way it works is the company's software-based gateway is already sitting in the data plane of your public cloud traffic. It's collecting flow records. It analyzes that flow records and compares it to a third-party database of known bad sites. Uh, and you can either automatically block that or just send an alert to an administrator who can review and then to Decide what to do. Is there an echo in here? This this feels like I've heard this story before. Have you heard this story before? Yes. Um, so yeah, it's not uh, a groundbreaking security feature by any means, but I think it's no, uh, I, an effort by Aviatrix to extend the capability of its platform so that's already in the data path of your cloud network. Yeah, I mean, this idea that once you've got traffic flowing through a cloud-based network of some sort, which is basically what Aviatrix does. I mean, remember we were talking before about MPLS and programming MPLS. That's basically what Aviatrix does. Uh, they, they use a combination of programming MPLS underlays as well as some overlay networking to kind of stitch together a network anywhere. It's much more about automating existing networks than it is creating an overlay, in my opinion, unless I misunderstand. You've had a much closer relationship. Is that fair? Yeah, they don't consider themselves an overlay. They're essentially using the native constructs mm. of whatever clouds you happen to be in to stitch together connectivity among those clouds. Yeah, a bit like what AWS is doing, except it's just doing it on its own network, right? Right, AWS is not going to do that for you for Azure, right? So if you're in both. No, then, that's yeah. right. Yeah, so Aviatrix, if you've got multi, you know, multiple brands of cloud, then you want, you're probably less interested in AWS's feature and you're looking at somebody like Aviatrix, which is fair. But I, I just... I mean, the, the number of times we've seen a networking company suddenly add security features like this, I, it, I am always immediately like, oh, okay, that must be for the share price so they can call themselves a security company, which is a little cynical. Um, but it also means that you get much more embedded in the customer, yes. which is, again, very much cynical of me because once you're handling security policy, instead of just routing packets for them, you're much more deeply embedded into the system and you're much less likely to get kicked out. Exactly. But yeah, but it must also be fairly simple to implement this type of product because Aviatrix has only 
probably had like a year to develop this or maybe a very short period of time. Um, and given the number of other networking companies that have been able to attach this in the in the cloud space, in this cloud networking space, it, it must not be a big deal to do this, do you think? No, I don't think so. And they're also using a pre-existing database. They're licensing it from Proofpoint, which does, you know, threat mm-hmm. detection and analysis. So they didn't even have to build that themselves. Uh, and obviously you can get, you know, this kind of blocking feature from a virtual next-gen firewall or secure web gateway that you might already be running in your public cloud. I think what Aviatrix would say is, uh, yeah, you can do that, but you could also just use our system and get multiple features all from one console. So there's some operational benefits. Yeah, I definitely feel like this is definitely valuable. Don't get me wrong. Uh, what I wanted to do is pull back and take a look at the bigger feature here and say, like, this feature seems to be pretty universal across the networking market. Once you've got a networking product that's in the way, it's fairly easy and straightforward to add a security layer to it in this case. And I know that there are a, a quite a few um, products that you can buy, like deep learning, machine learning, AI product platforms that are readily available for this. You can just feed the data in and attach a threat feed over here and lo and behold, you've got intelligence security features added. It's not all that easy. I mean, we saw Palo Alto do it. We've seen Fortinet do it with a lot more credibility than, than you know, a networking company. But still, uh, I think it's good though uh, because I think the compression of networking and security together is a positive thing for the market. This idea that the network is a key part of your security. There was a time back there when the network was just a pipe. Mm-hmm. And the security was done somewhere else. And networking was being dismissed and moved into a corner as a solved problem. And this uh, integration or compression or aggregation or rebundling um, puts networking back into the focus core and center because it means that security uh, in the network uh, can replace your security at the edge of the network for some use cases. Not all, just some. Just right. Not all, but some. Yes, absolutely. There is yep. a role for doing security features within networking. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm. Yes. And uh, as you mentioned, it's great for Aviatrix if they can get customers. Uh, if this product becomes more sticky, uh, then that's good for them. It's also, I guess, the side benefit is it's supposedly it's also good for customers because if you're reducing the number of consoles you're jumping from or the number of products you have to manage, that can also be a benefit. Yeah, no, definitely. Yeah, no, definite value. But, um, you know, there's lots of solutions in this space. We've seen SD-WAN companies add security to their yeah. products. Yeah. We've seen security companies add SD-WAN to their products. Uh, you know, we've seen underlay companies go to be overlay companies. We've seen companies like Alkira that do even more overlay, overlay. You know, they, they've added similar sorts of security features and completely abstracted away from the network uh, to do this. It's very interesting to see this diversity. Yeah. All right. Uh, another story. This came to us through uh, our packetpushers.net slash FU feature from a reader who highlighted that uh, back in January 2021, we reported on a security incident at the networking company Ubiquity, where customer data hosted on AWS was exposed. Uh, now evidence is coming to light that that breach may have been uh Uh, Conducted by a company insider, Bleeping Computer reports that a former Ubiquity employee has been arrested and charged with data data theft and extortion. And according to the indictment, the employee used his access allegedly to download gigabytes of company data. And then while working as part of the response team for that breach, he posed as a hacker and tried to extort Ubiquity for 50 Bitcoin, which was worth approximately 2 million at the time. The big takeaway that I got from this whole issue is that for 2 million, definitely an undersell. Because he's now facing a maximum sentence of 37 years in, in prison. Mm-hmm. That's not a risk reward statement. <laughs> <laughs> you would have asked for more. <laughs> if you, and also, if you're going to do this, don't do it in Bitcoin because Bitcoin's traceable, right? <laughs> <laughs> OPSEC is absolutely key here. OPSEC is key. I think there's a few issues here. Obviously, if you're an insider, it's very easy to hunt you down. Even though he took some rather what appears to be 
uh, cack-handed steps to hide it. He turned off the logging and all this stuff um, to try and hide what he was actually doing when it was happening. And uh, it says here, amongst other things, applied the one-day lifecycle retention policies to certain logs on AWS, which would have the effect of deleting evidence of the intruder's activity within one day and things like this. It, it, the answer is that obviously they were able to recover these some way, somehow. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's clearly intent. So to me, when it stands up in front of the court, provided ubiquity can prove its case that he was maliciously attacking, it's going to be a problem. Uh, but it also the fact is that he actually victimized his employer when they refused to pay. He then got in touch with various news uh, outlets and started sharing information to prove that he actually had it and to embarrass ubiquity into paying. So I mean, he really went all in. He really did. Yeah, he tried to position himself first as a hacker and then as a whistleblower uh, to try to get Ubiquity to uh, meet his demands, and it did not work. <laughs> <laughs> and it is interesting here in that Ubiquity, first of all, did not own up to this. They actually have an obligation to um, to go public with this information because this was actually happened in December 2020, and at that time there were various U.S. laws that if you are hacked, you are technically uh, should announce to the share market, and Ubiquity did not do that. Um, and there is also the question here, to my mind, Ubiquity does have a reputation with playing fast and loose with its reports to the SEC and to its shareholders. And there's also been various articles over the last two or three years that really haven't bubbled up seriously enough to make it onto the show that Ubiquity's internal security is a little bit lax and that some of their products have poor security. So it is reasonable to question here is to was uh, Ubiquity's internal security lax enough to actually allow this to happen? So we shouldn't blame only the person, but also companies like Ubiquity and all of our suppliers like, so this becomes supply chain. Are they taking enough to stop the insider threat? Um, So yeah, and it turns out that once this was happening, uh, the ubiquity share price fell by some amount, which amounts to four billion. I noticed, however, when I checked the share price today, that it didn't actually lose much in the long run. Right, it's <laughs> so, eventually recovered, so it's not like they actually lost four billion. It was just a blip. No, it lost a bit on the day, but the share price has since gone up from. So it, the share price at the time was trading about two eighty. It fell to two twenty for a day or two, and that's then traded up at three fifty. And then has subsequently traded around the $300, $310 mark since. So it's not like they suffered any permanent uh, loss over time. Right. Yeah, my takeaway is just, you know, the continuing reminder that insider threats are incredibly difficult to manage. You Because obviously employees need access to services and systems. So it's there's a lot of uh, onus on organizations to make sure that they've got good access control, good separation of duty, secure log storage and review, all of that kind of essential day-to-day stuff. Uh, this is just another reminder why you have to do that. Yeah. And this is why you have government and you pay the taxes, because when this happens, people take it to court and the courts are paid for by your taxes. Just remember that. Right. The FBI gets involved and then prosecutes this person. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. All right. Our last story for the day, just uh, a couple of notes on Omicron. That's the new variant of COVID, how it's already having an impact on the tech sector. First, uh, Cisco Live Amsterdam, it was scheduled to take place uh, in person in February of 22, has been canceled. Uh, at present, Cisco says it still hopes to host a live event in Las Vegas in June of next year, but we'll see. Uh, in other news, Google employees were expected to return to physical offices starting January 10th of 2022. Now the company has pushed back a mandatory return date indefinitely. Yeah, and Apple, similarly, uh, the most famous of come to the office or else. 
companies <laughs> perhaps uh, has also put back its return to the office indefinitely. I, I just, for what it's worth, you know, back in 2020 when this happened, I think you'll remember me saying to you, no, we will not be in-person events in 2020 or 2021 um, and probably not 2022. And I just want to point out that, yes, I was right. Um, and what I think is that Omicron was entirely predictable. We're not vaccinating enough people globally, right. much less in local communities. I mean, the, the take-up rate for vaccinations has to be well over 95% for us to beat COVID generally mm -hmm. in the short term. Uh, if you go out, you know, obviously there's a risk that, you, you know, you will go out and get uh, infected by COVID. And even if you catch COVID, that, you know, there's an even smaller risk that you will have a life-threatening position on this. It's, I often liken this to driving a car. You don't think every time you get in your car to go at the shop to grab a burger that you are going to die. But that is that is a real risk, right? There is a dice roll, yes, yes. Yes, it is a dice roll, right? And you might take steps to make sure that you have good tyres and, and have brakes, and that is what vaccination is, to my mind. I'm not telling you how to think. You live your life the way you want. But getting vaccinated is the approximate equivalent to having good tyres and repaired brakes and so forth on your, and your car is appropriately roadworthy and driving safely. It's the equivalent of that. And until vaccinations get up, I don't think that we'll be back doing a lot of stuff in person because these new variants are going to continue to incubate in the unvaccinated and then they're going to come back out into the community and those of us who are who have protection for vaccination are unprotected. So there is this, this is the issue that we're facing. I, I think live events are happening just because people who do live events want to have live events and people who like live events want to have live events and mm -hmm. they can't really imagine a new world. So, and I understand that, but I think, I do think, uh, live events are probably not where we're going to be for some years to come. I wonder for all the folks who are at uh, AWS reInvent in person, if they are, they should probably go and get tested just in case. And if we're going to hear any news about Omicron uh, rearing its head there. Mm, I mean, a lot of events are saying that you have to show your vaccination certificates to come in and that sort of thing, which is fine. But there's so much room for abuse there. You know, somebody who decides that, you know, they don't want to be vaccinated. Can we be certain? Uh, and that's a risk that you have to take. I mean, if you drive on the road, you have to trust every driver around you to drive safe. Right. But that's why we have police on the roads to stop people from driving too fast or driving dangerously or driving drunk. I mean, the other thing is we know breakthrough infections exist. There was a story about travelers coming into Amsterdam on a flight where presumably you have to demonstrate proof of vaccination on a flight who were infected. Mm. So yeah, things happen. Yeah. Yeah. This Omicron one, there was somebody came off a flight. I think they, they said there was 200 people on the flight. One person got on with Omicron and at the other end, something like 80 of them walked <laughs> yeah, off. 60 with got the, off with infected. it, right? <laughs> yeah. Some phenomenal number got infected. Yes. Just from a 12 hour flight. So, yeah. uh, you know, fortunately it appears that Omicron doesn't have worse consequences. It's just more transmissible at this so point. So far at this point, but, yeah. The next version might be the other way around. It might not be very transversal, but it might be lethal. We don't know. Yeah. So take care. Take care out there and uh, uh, consider your choices around vaccination if you can, please. Yeah, absolutely. All right, that wraps up the news portion of the show. Stick around. We've got a Tech Bytes conversation with sponsor Fortinet about its security fabric and the benefits of an integrated security portfolio. That's starting right now. Today on the Tech Bytes podcast, we're having a security conversation, specifically security fabrics or security mesh architectures. That is, you get an integrated set of products that work together to help you manage risk in the network or on endpoints and do things like improve detection and response. Our sponsor today is Fortinet. We're talking with Stephen Watkins. He is Director of Systems Engineering at Fortinet. 
Stephen, welcome to the podcast. And so just give us a basic overview. What is Fortinet Security Fabric? They're making an argument that they have a security fabric that's better than just standalone devices. What does that mean? Yeah, thanks. It's a it's a platform approach. I mean, as you mentioned, you could call it a security mesh or a security fabric, but essentially what it means for us is that we have a portfolio of products and solutions, which we natively work to integrate with one another. So as you have point products typically on the edge and within the infrastructure, uh, now you have a, a set of solutions and products that all speak to one another and communicate bi-directionally to be able to share information about security threats or other sort of posture elements within the infrastructure. And so really giving you that uh, homogenous information flow um, that you need to kind of protect yourself from today's threats. Okay, so what's the difference between a Fortinet, what you're calling a security fabric, and me just buying a best of breed, you know, AV and firewall and IPS and so on? What, what am I getting by a quote unquote security fabric? I think the biggest difference between, you know, going out and getting best of breed and having something that's more meshed or a security fabric is the experience. I think, you know, having point products out there gives you a lot of different consoles, a lot of different points where you have to mm. develop integration for or cause two products to become integrated in some form or fashion, where the security fabric is really done for you. It's integrated on your behalf from secure, from the vendor, in, in this case, from us, from Fortinet. And mm. so limiting the number of consoles for managing and monitoring and uh, reacting, all those different things are kind of brought together from us instead of you having to do that after buying a bunch of point solutions. So this is sort of this idea that you might have a cloud service that's doing your CASB, your, you know, your cloud access security broker that's doing content scanning and logging, and then you have an SD-WAN from a different vendor at the edge of the network, and then you have firewalls in the core of your network comes from a different vendor, and then you have a seam that comes from another vendor, and then you have, you know, firewalls from another vendor in a different part of your network, and then over here in the cloud service, you have a whole different set of, you know, tooling over there, and your security platform becomes death by a thousand paper cuts. You have different vendors involved, they don't integrate. If you want to establish a security policy, you've got to configure it across. I, I mean, there was a study recently and they said something like the typical enterprise IT has like 75 different security tools and nobody actually knows how they work because there's too many of them or something like that. That's, that's a really great point, that that mm. by paper cut. Uh, so it, essentially, when, when you have a multi-vendor approach, you, you have to rely on the integration points. Uh, if one vendor has an upgrade to their code, does that break the integration with one or other multiple vendors within your infrastructure? Uh, and so that's, that's a big challenge uh, because mm -hmm. if it breaks something, something's not working the way it was. And so you're missing out on information. You're missing out on policy enforcement, you're, minced, you're missing out on visibility into how things are operated in your environment. Uh, with a platform approach, you don't really have that same impact when you're looking across code upgrades because code upgrades are taken care of in and of themselves through the integrated platforms. And so being able to say, I don't have to turn on connectivity between a firewall and a SIM from a sharing perspective, not just sending logs and doing log analytics, but also being able to identify those particular threats and being able to intelligently communicate back to a firewall, back to an IPS, back to all sorts of other 
policy enforcement points to be able to now dynamically modify policy to protect against a specific detected threat. All right. So let's dig into some examples. Zero trust. There's a lot of talk about it in the industry. How would Fortinet make the case that we've got an integrated zero trust fabric? Let me just lay down some foundation. So 40 OS is our core product, if you will. Everybody knows 40 OS probably is FortiGate, but 40 OS is actually the firmware that resides within the, the FortiGate, whether it's a hardware appliance, whether it's a, a VM, or whether it's in the cloud and one of those public cloud platforms. And so when we start with 40 OS, we, we get everything that's kind of pulled together. And so we're converging network and security. And 40 OS can act as that single sort of uh, WAN edge consolidation platform. So you have everything from next-gen firewall capabilities, SD-WAN capabilities, quality of service, advanced routing, all in a single platform at the edge. And so really kind of pulling things together. And so expanding that out into the management plane, we have one management plane that not only manages 40 OS on the edge, but it can also manage the infrastructure behind it. So we're talking things like switch and access points. And so being a wireless controller, being a switch controller, that's all managed again through one user interface, whether that's on-prem, you wanna run it in the cloud or you wanna have it hosted in the, in the cloud environment. So pulling everything together and then zero trust comes into play when we have that part of our portfolio, what we call for the client and EMS. We add that in natively to be able to communicate not only across the 40 OS sort of architecture, but now we're integrating the mobile edge. And so those laptops, those other devices that are, that are managed by EMS, now we can communicate all sorts of posture elements. And so we can start tagging traffic with different elements and being able to use our 40 OS as an access proxy to be able to enforce dynamic security policy across the entire architecture. So, so the challenge here, now I know there are other vendors who are doing this, who have, you know, you, you put a client on the laptop or the smart phone and then it tags the packets and then those tags are carried through the network and then the devices are supposed to pick them up and they have massive problems with things, simple things like licensing. The vendor's got some sort of licensing strategy and you don't know if it's going to work or not because the licensing is not obvious as to how it works. And another problem you have is that trying to get all the devices in the path to have the same policy because different business units in the company program their device or they acquire the devices from some third party and they haven't got around to updating them. And so you're doing half of it. You know, like, are you really able to do all of this in a single platform? Like, can I make this into a single fabric? Because I'm kind of dubious, right? Sure. And it, totally understood, right? And so 40 OS, the beauty about 40 OS is that you, you get all those capabilities I mentioned, the, the SD-WAN, the ZTNA, the firewalling, the, the QoS, the IPS, all of those advanced security capabilities in addition to the networking functions all of those are included in the same license. And so when you want to add on, you know, ZTNA, when you want to turn on SD-WAN, it's, it's a matter of turning it on. It isn't another module that you have to install. It's not another download. It's not another license. And then we extend that when we speak about the framework of ZTNA. There's not a ZTNA license that you have to install on 40OS, then you have to install on EMS and client. Uh, all those things are, are integrated 
for ease of use by our, by our customers. We want to make things more simplified. That's what customers are asking for today. Help us simplify our network and secure architecture. And so we're doing that, not just from a function perspective, but also at the management plane, being able to pull that in through a 40 manager interface with 40 analyzer on the back end, doing those analytics and being able to really have visibility across the entire environment without pulling up three, four different consoles. And ZTNA in part is also about making sure you've got the right policies and the right policy enforcement points. And you're saying that because you've got the built-in firewalls, SD-WAN, you're at the places where an endpoint is going to try to connect to get access to a resource, you've got an enforcement point where you can apply a policy. Exactly. And so when, when I say ZTNA with 40 OS in the same sentence, what we really do is we, we kind of bring that uh, industry term access proxy into play. And so 40 OS essentially becomes an access proxy for mm -hmm. those endpoints. And so now they establish direct tunnels. And so it's not just, you know, uh, old school VPN where we connect up to one thing in one place and then everything else uses private wire or other additional point-to-point -point VPNs from there. But these connections are from the endpoint device directly to those access proxies, protecting the resources that reside behind them. So you also mentioned SD-WAN. I don't know if people are aware that Fortinet is an SD-WAN company because that's sometimes there's a split between security and networking and Fortinet's kind of in the security box, but you're saying you've got a full suite of SD-WAN products that are also part of this fabric. Yeah, and and you know I hate to beat this drum, but it's the same 40 OS that is uh, that is you know our leading firewall as well. And so SD-WAN is a capability that's built into 40 OS. And one thing that maybe not everybody kind of realizes, but it's not just secure SD-WAN. It's a full featured pure play SD-WAN solution where we compete in the market regularly with all the same features. And so there is no turn it all on or you get nothing. It's not an all or nothing solution. It's SD-WAN and it can be SD-WAN alone. And we have customers who have deployed 40 OS in just that fashion where they're using only the networking. Now, secure, net, secure SD-WAN is most dominantly our biggest use case. However, uh, a lot of customers don't understand that, that 40 OS is in and of itself an SD-WAN solution and can be leveraged in that fashion. So if I buy the appliance, I put it in a branch, I turn on SD-WAN, if down the line, I also want to turn on Next-Gen Firewall or other security features, that's just essentially, as you said, ticking a box and it's up and running on that device. Certainly, and so when you talk about you know advanced security features, there there is often a one-time or an annual subscription for those features. But when you buy a FortiGate, whether it's a virtual or hardware appliance, and you have a support contract for that, you get the advanced routing, the QoS, the SD-WAN, all that without additional licensing on the box. And so you can turn those on as, as frequently or as infre infrequently as you like. Uh, but you know, to clarify, there is a subscription for our advanced security services. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. I've had people say to me how easy it was. Uh, you know, they didn't have to fuss with it. And, you know, the frustration with this subscription licensing and having to work out, you know, I'm being, it's, it, it's imagine renting a house and then having to rent the door and then rent each room and then rent the bed <laughs> yeah. and then work out how much it's costing you 
And, and this is how some people feel about these subscription services and the complexity associated. It, it feels like the companies that are doing it don't know how to charge. And so each, you know, they're exposing each internal part of the business. I guess the other part here is that at the edge of the network, so when we have endpoints, this is all integrated as well. I've, I mean, imagine you've still got some licensing going on around the endpoints and the number of endpoints, but is that integrated as well? Because sometimes that endpoint detection and scanning is actually a different thing. Like it's not integrated? It, it absolutely is integrated. So we use central management as well for our endpoints, but that central management becomes really the communication facility when we speak about a zero trust architecture. And so that EMS, as we call it, is receiving information from all those endpoints, being able to create those tags, apply those tags to those different devices. And then EMS is also the communicator from itself out to all those access proxies so that we can be able to identify new policy changes to existing posture sort of characteristics for a particular mm. device. But again, all of that is included in the licensing with which you get. There is, no, again, there's, there's no additional, hey, this is a ZTNA license. Hey, this is a, right. you know, this sort of license. So, it, so it's really simplified. what you're doing is making that pitch that Fortinet is a full spectrum security company from firewalls to SD-WAN to SASE to endpoint detection and, you know, remediation to cloud scanning services. We've done shows on all of these, right? where you, you've got a CASB, I can send my data off into the cloud to be logged and scanned. You've got the firewall product, of course, as well as the routing. So if you want to do IPSEC, you can do that as well. So that's, that's setting you up to be a full platform, like a security platform. And increasingly what we're seeing is people turn away from saying, I want this product from that security company and this product from that security company because it just doesn't, what, unified, simplifying the operations, simplifying the purchasing. Which one do you think is the most important? I think what I'm hearing from our customers a lot when I speak with, you know, CTOs or, or CSOs or anybody from, you know, from the top to the bottom, it's about simplification. Uh, and so simplification in their terminology means, you know, less screens. Uh, it means, you know, easier management, but it mm -hmm. means maintaining the same sort of capabilities, no matter where these, fe these features and functionalities exist, whether they're in the infrastructure or at the edge. We need to make sure that we're delivering the same sort of security features without reducing the efficacy, but doing it in a way that makes them be able to expand their capabilities without having to take on a lot of training, without having to take on a lot of vendor mm. support contracts. So simplification seems to be the very tip of the iceberg right now in a lot of conversations. I've been very critical of cybersecurity and this idea that, you know, one of these, one of these, one of these, and then I have to have one person. To, and then you're trying to bring together a security policy. So the idea that you're going to focus down on less vendors covering more ground, there's a trade-off, but it's probably a viable one, I think. Yeah, I mean, I guess the downside I feel like is that if a vendor comes up to me and says, I've got a platform, I'm thinking, okay, that means you want me to buy all your stuff, you know, which is fine, a vendor's going to do that. But what if I've already got a significant investment in firewall or seam or log analysis or whatever is are those essentially now I just have to throw them in the bin or what, what do I do with those? Yeah, that's a great question. And I'll, I'll reference back just quickly to our, you know, peer play SD-WAN uh, wins where we have uh, implemented just SD-WAN without the security. Uh, a lot of times those customers do come to us and say exactly that. Hey, we see that Fortinet is a leader in the SD-WAN industry 
but we have an investment in another vendor for security. How can we work that? Well, number one, you can work that because we do SD-WAN very well. Number two, you know, we have what we call this security alliance or ecosystem, if you will. So it's security fabric ecosystem. And then we have our partner technology alliances. And so there's more than 400 vendors in this alliance that we integrate in some way, right? Whether that's an API or what we term our development, our native development as fabric connectors, or whether that's just DevOps tools, right? Scripts, something very simple. We integrate with, you know, over 400 different vendors. And so we do that because we understand that it's very difficult sell to say, here's the fabric, buy everything all at once. Number one, that's just a tough sell anywhere. Number two, there's, like you mentioned, a lot of existing investments in the infrastructure. And so we need to be able to be sure if we're going to provide value in the security fabric, we have to deliver that in a way that's not just, hey, if you didn't buy everything, you don't get all this value, but we can increase the value even if it doesn't have a Fortinet logo on it. So what does it mean to be a part of that ecosystem? If I'm you know, looking at my Fortinet console, do you mean I can surface up information from a third-party device in that console? Or give me a concrete example of what it means to be in the ecosystem. So uh, just being able to, like you said, you know, being able to communicate, it, for example, uh, with the cloud providers, being able to establish secure connectivity between an edge and a cloud provider, uh, for example, with SD-WAN, so providing cloud on-ramp in that manner, uh, you know, and very easily being able to do that with our fabric connectors. We build the fabric connectors for folks like GCP or, or Azure or Amazon. And so we build that in there. You come in and fill out a couple of things, and then you have connectivity between your edge sites and your cloud sites. And so we can deliver that very easily instead of having to build those things from scratch. And now we have a dynamic capability to be able to say, as things change in the cloud environment capabilities, IP addresses, ports, we can dynamically transfer that information from the cloud down to the edge to be able to provide that secure access to those who need it and then prevent access for those who don't. And so being able to pull all that information together uh, from not only native Fortinet or FortiGate products, but also outside of that realm. All right, well, that does bring us to the end of the conversation. Stephen, if folks want to find out more about the fabric or anything about Fortinet, where should they go? Of course, uh, best place to go is just www.fortinet.com. All right, Fortinet.com, nice and easy. Well, thank you, Stephen, for joining us. And thanks to you for being a listener. If you liked what you heard, check out packetpushers.net for a feast of technical blogs on networking, cloud, and infrastructure. You can follow us on Twitter at Packet Pushers. Find us on LinkedIn and like us on Apple Podcasts. And last but not least, remember that too much networking would never be enough. <laughs>